1: The Box of Oddities
0: is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest-growing, highest-rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts, but we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
3: Oh my God, will you please relay the observation that you shared with me last night? Because I I think this is something that is universal. I think everybody reacts the same way to this, but but nobody articulates it.
2: Well, I don't know if that's true. I simply stated... That I went into the restroom at work yesterday, as I do several times a day, um, and I sat down on the toilet, and the toilet seat was warm, and I just about threw up. Um, I have a similar
3: reaction, but I I never thought to articulate it, and and I just, I couldn't love you more. We We are so much alike. I'm a foot flusher by the way oh for sure you know when when i'm in a public restroom and i read an article not long ago about this courthouse i think it was in in michigan where um the toilets in the women's room were, were always broken because they were foot flushing mm-hmm. more than the guys were you know they're more i guess conscious of germs <laughs> and things guys don't care they'll put a sandwich mm-hmm. on the back of a urinal
2: plus they let that they let that mellow ah uh, unless they poop yeah and uh
3: if it's brown flush it down exactly yeah yeah, yeah. but i th- i found i found that interesting that uh it's kind of you know are you
2: well why don't we why don't we advance as a society and start putting flush things on the floor as a pedal
3: like like the uh trash cans that exactly with, with the lids i know i know i've thought that for years it it, it just only makes sense
2: Guys, it's 2018.
3: We need a push pedal flush. Yeah. Plus, you can
2: pretend you're in a race car. (laughs) Rum, rum.
3: I don't know. Several episodes ago, I was talking about how I could remember when I was two and actually a little bit younger than that Mm -hmm. and you kind of think that's freaky it is that i can we got an email from from kelly and by the way if you've sent us emails i'm about two weeks behind in responding (laughs) i'm really sorry if you haven't heard back from us yet you will um kelly writes i'm gonna one-up you on memories from early childhood jethro i remember breastfeeding oh
2: my goodness
3: She says, I have something
2: I'm glad I don't remember.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I have an identical twin and I have one distinct memory of me on one boob and sis on the other. To be fair, we were breastfeeding until we were 14. No, it doesn't say that. It says, uh, they breastfed until they were almost three. Um, but she says, she remembers that very clearly. That's, um, you may have me beat. Freaking love you guys and hope I'm just like you when I grow up. Oh, I don't know if you want to do that. (laughs) But thanks for writing curator at the box of is our email address. We always love hearing from you. And again, we'll get back to you as quickly as we can.
2: Unless we don't.
3: And then you just deal with it. Um, it's time for you. You go first. What you got for me? <laughs> we Another email we got. Somebody said that uh, at work, that's how she answers the phone now.
2: What you got for me. What you got for me. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And there are only select professions where that would work out.
3: Yeah. Gynecological. No. No, probably. Sperm donor bank. No, no, no. no.
2: Because you already know the answer. (laughs) It's sperm.
3: Yep. Congratulations.
2: (laughs) All right, so um, I um, this was something I was excited to to talk about today because I needed to learn about it. I was actually shocked at how little I knew about this person and this event. I'm I'm interested to know what you know about it already. All right. Peter Ivers. I know that name. Of course, you do. Uh, Peter Ivers was an American musician, songwriter, and television. Television personality. Television personality. He was the host of an experimental music television show called New Wave Theater. Peter Ivers was an extraordinarily talented musician. Muddy Waters actually referred to him as the greatest harp player alive. Wow. Ivers was signed uh, to a $100,000 contract as a solo artist for Warner Brothers um, in the early 70s. His albums. Didn't do so well commercially, but
3: critically, acclaimed.
2: critically, they they said that he was amazing. Um, but for whatever reason, the, they didn't sell so well. He made his live debut opening for the New York Dolls, and he shared concert bills with uh, acts like Fleetwood Mac. He's, That's where
3: I recognize his name is from his work with Fleetwood Mac is it in the early days.
2: He also scored uh, David Lynch's film, Eraserhead in 1977. Oh, my God. Later in his career, he wrote songs that were recorded by Diana Ross and the Pointer Sisters. He
3: was pretty diverse from from the New York Dolls to the Pointer Sisters all
2: over the place. Good Lord, he had his hands in so much. And uh biographer josh frank wrote uh, a book about him it's called in heaven everything is fine Uh, the unsolved life of peter ivers and the lost history of new wave theater i'm actually going to add that book to our goodreads account Um, i haven't had a chance to like read it but it i've read excerpts and it just seems like it really goes into some amazing depth into the things that he did in his life and it's just incredible.
3: And, and by the way, you can join us on Goodreads by searching Cat and Jethro on the Goodreads app.
2: Yeah. Um, one of the things that made Peter Ivor so interesting was um, his circle of friends. He hung out with uh, Chevy Chase, Harold Ramis, David Lynch, uh, Devo, Ron Howard, Bill Murray, The Pixies, Jella Biafra, Stockard Channing, Tommy Lee Jones, John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Gary Wright. They all referred to him as a, a huge influence in their lives. Oh my God. Um, they were, he was buds with Beverly D'Angelo, Lawrence Fisher. James Taylor, John Lithgow, he was into everything. And one of those people that just uh, chameleoned his way, if there was something interesting or artistic, he wanted to know about it. He wanted to learn about it and be a part of it.
3: Can you imagine uh, going to one of his parties? No. Oh, my God. It would have
2: been absolutely incredible. So it's 1983. And Peter Ivers is dating Lucy Fisher. Uh, Lucy Fisher had moved to Los Angeles with Ivers and she began her career as a freelance scriptwriter at United Artists. Um, she ended up continuing to work her way up the ladder. She was an executive story editor for MGM, uh, vice president of production at 20th Century Fox. She was then hand picked as head of production by Francis Ford Coppola for his production company. Wow. So in Los Angeles, he's working on this show. He's got his hands in some music. He's working on stuff. And he never uh, really achieved mainstream success, but he was described in um, that book by biographer, Frank, as being connected by a second degree to every major pop culture event over 30 years.
3: Second degree he connection.
2: touched everything. Wow. He had so much going on. And everyone that this biographer spoke to about him, said that he was just he was pretty much the guy. He was ahead of the curve on everything. He was the cool guy who knew about this stuff. You know? Uh, okay. You're like, you're like, oh yeah, I heard about blah blah blah. And Peter Ivers would have been like, oh yeah, I was looking into that last year. Yeah, you know it's so He's, last season. Right. Not that in and, and never that I didn't read anything that said that he was, you know, snarky about it in any way, but that he was just he was in it and mm. was just part of so much.
3: It just sounds like he was one of those types of personalities that was uh, intriguing, charismatic, unique, yeah. odd, and and attracted people to him a lot like maybe like like Andy Warhol was.
2: Exactly. And I was interesting because I thought you were going to say Andy Kaufman, um, who they ended up working together for a short period of time, or he handed off his role to Andy Kaufman or something. There was some connection there. But again, second connection to just about everything. Wow. Ever, um, and one of the things that's repeated over and over again in all the the stuff that I read was how surprising it is that more people don't know about him because of how much he touched and how many people were just so taken by him and influenced. It sounds absolutely. So on March third, nineteen eighty three, Peter Ivers was found bludgeoned to death. Uh, with a hammer in his Los Angeles loft apartment. Wow, he was in That's bed. A bummer. Uh, yeah, for sure. He was in bed at the time of his death, presumably sleeping, and in the hours following his death, hundreds of his friends, family, and acquaintances flocked to his apartment um, to to mourn, to see what was going on, and for one reason or another, uh, LAPD officers at Ivor's house, failed to secure the scene, allowing many of Ivor's friends and acquaintances to just move in and out of this murder scene.
3: Oh, my God. At will. While he's still there? I don't know. Cooling in the bedroom? <laughs> Good God. I think probably
2: they had picked up his body by that time, but there certainly it was still an active investigation. Sure. Obviously, the scene was at the very least contaminated with other people's business. Um, one of the people coming in was David Jove, Do you know who David Jove is? No. All right. So he was born David Snyderman, and he was from... Canada. Uh he was a director, a producer, a writer. Um he spent much of the 1960s in London and then became acquainted with the Rolling Stones circle of friends that he called himself Acid King Dave and was allegedly part of a government and allegedly part of a government drug setup of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards which resulted in the infamous Redlands bust.
3: No kidding.
2: Yeah. Then he moved to Los Angeles, where uh, he would be based for the rest of his life. He created the 1980s music program, New Wave Theater. That was a part of the USA Network's late night weekend variety show called Night Flight, which was hosted by Peter Ivers. Okay,
3: I remember Night Flight.
2: Vaguely. Vaguely. (laughs) Because
3: if I was up at that hour, um, I wasn't at my best. Let's just say that in the 80s.
2: So, in addition to letting people tootle about the crime scene, uh, more shockingly, officers allowed David Jove to leave the apartment with the blood-stained blankets from Peter Ivor's bed. What? Yeah.
3: They allowed him to? Allowed him to. Like, he's going out of the door, he's Mm -hmm. got these bloody blankets folded under his arm, neatly tucked. And the police officers are like, "Oh, yes,, uh, right this way. Do you need a hand with that here? Let me help that lo- help you load that in your truck. How about some of this furniture while you're at it?"
2: I had a really hard time finding details about what what went on uh, during that day, that investigation, why so many people were allowed in, why people were allowed to take things out. Um, Part of the theory is that the apartment was like a loft, and it was in what is now known as the Arts District, but then it was like a super shady side of town, and so the thought Processes, maybe the police were kind of like, oh, well, it's murder on this side of town, no big deal, and mm. just didn't put any effort into it, even though it was Peter Ivers. So it's very strange. Peter had Hollywood friends who blamed everything that went down on the punks that he hung out with. And the punks, of course, blamed the Hollywood type friends for what happened there. Everyone's pointing fingers and police ended up briefly suspecting Harold Ramis as the murderer. What? Um, I guess... Peter Ivers had a really close relationship with Harold's wife, Anne, but he was quickly cleared after uh, he was able to establish an alibi. It's so strange. I can't think of anything weirder than Harold Ramis being named as a murder suspect. Yeah,
3: I can't picture in my mind Harold Ramis bludgeoning somebody to death with a hammer. (laughs) You know, he's a weird dude. He was a weird dude, but uh, no, you know, not no.
2: If somebody asks you if you're a god... Sorry. Anyway.
3: Who okay. did he play in Ghostbusters? I mean, he was he was a writer, a director, uh, an actor. He was one of the Ghostbusters. What
2: was his name? Spengler. Spangler. Spangler. Egon.
3: Yeah, right. There you go.
2: We should watch Ghostbusters. All right. There was a shockingly little amount of information about, as I mentioned, what went on that day. Uh, but really, the murder in general. Um, one of the best sources is this book written by Josh Frank that, again, I will post on Goodreads. Um, many of... Iver's friends told Josh Frank that they suspected David Jove because why else would you be taking the bloody bedsheets unless there was, I mean what what are you going to do? Are you going to eBay those? I guess eBay wasn't a thing in 83, but but still what are you going to do with those? Why are you why? Um, But also because David Jove and Iver's had a pretty contentious relationship at times. Harold Ramis noted, and this is quoted from uh, that book, As I grew to know David a little better, it just accumulated. All the clues and evidence just made me think he was capable of anything. I couldn't say with certainty that he'd done anything, but of all the people I knew, he was the one person I couldn't rule out. Wow. Law enforcement never um, followed up on any of that, or...? Like I said, there's shockingly little amount of information wow. regarding the investigation. It kind of feels like it was thrown away. Hmm. But then again, it was the 80s, and it's hard to gather that kind of information from the internet when this was pre internet. But you, I mean, I'm, it just seems like this isn't something that, like I said, I'd never heard of this before. I knew uh, who Peter Ivers was, sort of. Right. But I didn't know about all this. No, no, this Um,
3: this is all new to me, too.
2: So, Durf Scratch of the band Fear and several other members of the Los Angeles punk and New Wave scene have uh, strongly come out and maintained Jove's innocence. Um, I don't know that it was as much as saying we were with him and so it's impossible mm-hmm. but i think most people were saying no he wouldn't do that yeah but right. i you know what's that worth really not too much. Yeah. No. So it's like five weeks after the murder and Lucy Fisher who who was Ivor's girlfriend at the time was just overwhelmed with the idea that in, police investigations weren't finding anything so she hired a private investigator to focus on the crime. Um, that private investigator interviewed a number of people uh, but due to that initial investigation being botched uh, there was so little evidence there were no witnesses uh, the case eventually stalled out and And we still don't know who murdered Peter Ivers. Wow. That's the end.
3: Why have I not heard about this?
2: I don't know. Why hadn't I heard of it?
3: Ah, wow. And this was 83. Correct. Good God. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like uh, because of the type of person he was and the circles that he moved in, could have been anything, any, any motive.
2: Right, but you'd also think because of that clout, that there would have been some sort of effort into, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. solving it. Um, it just seems like it was thrown away, and maybe that's just you know the thirty years later perspective because I don't have access to the information that I should have. But it's kind of what everyone else seems to be reporting as well. The people that were there. It just sounds like it was kind of thrown away.
3: It just blows my mind that somebody that could be that influential and that connected. Mm could be bludgeoned to death with a hammer and nobody seems to care.
2: That's I like I said I have not yet read In Heaven Everything Is Fine, The Unsolved Life of Peter Ivers and The Lost History of the New Wave Theater. So maybe there are more details in there that that I didn't get from my my web searches, but I couldn't even find information like who discovered his body, hmm. um who he was with the night before how long the investigation went on for. I mean, it was just, it, there was just so little to pull from.
3: Well, I'm just grateful Harold Ramis didn't kill him with a hammer.
2: Well, I mean, he was cleared, but.
3: <laughs> okay.
1: I
2: just can't picture
3: him doing that. I No. You know.
2: I just think it's fascinating the number of people that were so closely involved with his life. And yet I just, I knew nothing of this. And still, we are no closer to a, a resolution than we were in 1983. Of course, I was too. So, <laughs> I I didn't have a lot of clout then.
3: No, uh, no. not a lot of
2: pull in the LAPD. <laughs> not, not, not like not like today. Not
0: like today.
2: <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and
0: now the box of oddities brings you that thing in the middle. Today, that thing in
3: the middle. Odd historical facts. Number five. Cotex. Was first manufactured as bandages during World War I.
2: They're very absorbent. Number four, in England, the Speaker of the House is not allowed to speak.
3: Number three, David Bowie used to think he was being stalked by someone dressed like a giant pink rabbit. Bowie noticed the fan at several concerts, but became alarmed when he got on an airplane and the bun was sitting next to him. <laughs> I wonder if that was before David cleaned up.
2: (laughs) Number two, the movie Wayne's World was filmed in two weeks.
3: That magnificent example of cinematography was made in two weeks?
2: Party time.
3: Excellent. And number one, in Elizabethan England, the spoon was so novel and prized that people carried their own folding spoons to banquets.
2: I really like this, and I think that we should bring this tradition back. Folding spoons? No, just bringing your own flatware.
0: People are gross. (laughs) The box of oddities. It's not for everyone.
3: You know how I've talked about how interesting it is to get a little peek into history. I love reading Civil War diaries as an example. Right. Kind of takes you right to the moment. These are words that were penned by people who witnessed history. We've all heard the story of the Titanic like eleventy bajillion times. Sure. One thing I've not heard a lot are eyewitness accounts.
2: Oh, yeah. No, that's true.
3: And I found some.
2: That's fun. I
3: was able to pull most of this from uh, Ranker and or Wikipedia. Now, of course, the Titanic went down on April 15th, 1912. Hit an iceberg. We all know that story. What must it have been like to be on deck? The worst. The absolute worst. (laughs) But what was even worse than being trapped on deck was being trapped below deck. I can't. Finnish newlyweds Ellen and Pecco, a hackaranian, boarded the Titanic. Uh, their idea was to start a new life in America. Mm-hmm. Ellen spoke of the fun that they had as third-class passengers. In her account, she said, After a couple of days at sea, we settled into a routine, attending church services after breakfast, strolling the decks, and during the evening playing games in the third-class general room.
2: How many classes were there on the Titanic? Do you know?
3: I think there were three. Yeah. On the night of April 14th, the couple heard uh, some scraping along the side Mm. of the boat, and Pecco went out to see what happened. Ellen went back to sleep. When she woke, she tried to get out of bed, but the cabin was tilted at an angle, Mm. and her husband was still gone Um, at that point. Other passengers were out in the hallway walking around. You know, what's going on? What's the deal?
2: Right. Is it the midnight chocolate bonanza? Uh,
3: Yeah. Ellen's husband was up on the deck, but all the third-class passengers where Ellen was were locked below. After a few moments, she said, I grabbed my purse and life jacket and ran to the passageway. The door was locked. All the doors were locked. Eventually, she was allowed up top and made her way into a lifeboat.
2: What? Did they lock them so that the third class people wouldn't interfere with the life-saving measures for the Richies?
3: I think that uh, if if memory serves me, they just locked them in at night so they wouldn't roam around in the uh, second and first class areas.
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. But how did uh, Pecco get out?
3: Apparently he got out before they locked the doors. Okay. Once she got into the lifeboat, she said, Quote, we rowed away quickly, uh, watching our ship slide beneath the surface of the water. The screams of those in the water were horrible. I remember calling over and over, "Pecco, Peko, I am here, come this way. It was cold on the lifeboat. I wasn't wearing warm clothes. I didn't know if I was falling asleep or freezing to death, but I eventually drifted into unconsciousness. Soon after, it was daylight and we could see a ship in the distance. We were rescued and made warm. Once on board the Carpathia, the passengers and the crew did their best to console us. We were given clothes and food and hot coffee, but with all we were given, I was still lacking. I slowly realized the last words I might ever hear from my husband were, I'm going to see what has happened. I remember standing at the railing for hours, looking out to the open sea, and hoping upon hope that I would discover just one more lifeboat. Pecco did not survive. Ellen never saw him again. Oh. Oh, I should warn you, n- none of these are good.
0: Oh, okay.
3: Another passenger, Helen Churchill Candy, was a feminist and a single woman traveling on the Titanic alone.
2: Helen! You're my bitch.
3: That must have caused quite a quite a scandalous stir in those days.
0: Yeah.
3: She was 53. And she was, quote, so attractive that at least half a dozen men in first class, including Colonel Archibald Gracie, seemed like they were inclined to protect her. Oh, really? Look out for her.
2: Interesting. Interesting how the pretty ones always get protected.
3: She later wrote with respect. Meanwhile, she's
2: like, I don't need you. Back up off me. Yep.
3: Yep. She later wrote with respect uh, about the workers who dutifully gave their lives. She, she witnessed this. She said, a group of stokers, now those were the workers down in the steam engine that shoveled coal in, fleeing the water-filled decks below appeared. Each face reflected the sight he had seen, the sight of coming death. Each knew what the passengers did not know at that time. All of a sudden, the junior officer who led them gave a short halt The men did as they were told. They turned around and went back down below to their deaths. I looked with profound admiration at the descending column of men who could courageously relinquish their life. Wow. I mean, these guys knew they were going to die. They knew if they... But why? They were following orders.
2: But why? (laughs)
3: Yeah, at this point, yeah, what are they going to do? Kill you?
2: We're going to do fire me?
3: Yeah. I think it was just that they realized that if they didn't go down and continue to, to work, there was no hope. And at that point, maybe they still had some for the I, rest of the ship. Yes. They were doing it to help maximize the survival rate in, at their own life's expense.
2: In my mind, it was doomed. So because I know how this this story ends. Right. So I guess I can understand if they didn't, you know, if they thought that there was hope to. All right. Fine. Very honorable.
3: Annie McGowan was 15 when she was on the Titanic, and she was with her aunt, and they were traveling from Ireland to New York, and uh, she didn't talk about it until she was 86 years old.
2: It was 84. Okay, sorry.
3: Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, She said, uh, quote, women would not leave their husbands. They were screaming. I could hear gunshots in the background. Apparently, some of the men had tried to dress like women in order to be rescued, and the crew shot them.
2: Oh my goodness.
3: She recalled men begging to get into her lifeboat. They said, quote, let me in or I'll tip the whole lifeboat. Of course we had to let them in.
2: I wouldn't get on a boat without you, but I also wouldn't let you into my dresses. You're far too broad-shouldered.
3: I would own some of those sleeveless gowns you have.
2: <laughs> no, it's true. You're much hotter than I am.
3: That's not true. <laughs> that is not true. These letters and accounts and interviews really give a, a very well-defined glimpse as to what it was like, what it must have been like. And, and one of the things that I came away with from these uh, these interviews is that at first when it happened, people felt the bump when it hit the iceberg, but mm-hmm. it was so slight, no one thought anything of it. They just went back to bed. and. Right very quickly they realized that was the wrong decision
2: i think about you know you and i cruise from time to time and i it does every once in a while the Sheer insanity of what we're doing like washes over me, and I realize <laughs> how much water is underneath us, yeah. and how many things could go wrong when really I mean the big fear should be the salad bar, but <laughs> really <laughs> like just the depths of the oceans that we go through sometimes it it makes me feel kind of like that weird hollow inside yeah. feeling, yeah. and then it passes, you know we go and do something fun, and I'm over it, but these people had to deal with that idea that it was not there wasn't even a boat between them and that depth. Yeah. they were just there they in were it in it. Whew.
3: You remember that ship that uh, that tipped over in port not long ago there's pictures the of it The
2: Concordia yeah
3: yeah so I think it, that was it. People that uh, experienced that, one woman said that uh, she was in the dining room when it happened, and on the overhead, they were playing uh, Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On.
2: <gasps>
3: and I'm You should think-
2: never play that song on a boat. Never
3: play that song on a boat, but how ironic that uh, it was playing <laughs> just as the ship is tipping over.
2: <laughs> Your heart may go on, but this boat is not.
3: That was the, uh, the incident where the... Uh, the captain left before everybody else, and that's just bad form. Right,
2: he was like, later days, yep. <laughs> I'm and, out. And
3: when he was asked about it in in, in the trial, he said that uh, the ship, when it tipped over, threw him out into a lifeboat. They didn't buy that. No? No. Weird. No. Yeah. Laura Mabel Fractelli, 30-year-old secretary from London, described the arrival of the Carpathia, mm. the ship that would save them. She's out in the water. She's in a lifeboat. At daybreak... We saw the lights of that ship about four miles away. We rowed like mad and passed icebergs like mountains. At last, at about 6.30, the dear Carpathia picked us up. Our lifeboat was just a little speck against this giant. Then came my weakest moment. They lowered a rope swing, which was awkward to sit on with my life preserver around me. Then they hauled me up by the side of the boat. Can you imagine swinging in the air over the sea? I just shut my eyes and clung tight, saying, am I safe? At last I felt a strong arm pulling me into the boat.
2: That would hardly be my concern.
3: (laughs) Swinging over the sea.
2: Right. Uh, You've been floating in it for the past (laughs) couple of hours. You're doing fine.
3: Elizabeth Schutz, 40 at the time, was traveling with a family who employed her as a governess. After the ship hit the iceberg, she was quickly ushered onto a lifeboat with other stunned passengers. She was eventually rescued, obviously, and she described the experience this way. Our men knew nothing about the position of the stars, hardly how to pull together. She's talking about in the rowboat. Two oars were soon overboard. Men's hands were too cold to hang on. Then across the water swept that awful whale the cry of those drowning people. In my ears I heard she's gone, lads. Row like hell or we'll get the devil of a swell.
2: Goodness, that must be awful.
3: What a combination of awful feelings. I mean, you're you're scared, you're terrified, you, you um you're worried about loved ones, and you probably feel guilty of course that you're in the rowboat and people all around you are drowning and freezing and dying. Ruth Becker was twelve. When she was on the uh, Titanic, she was in second class with her family. Many, many years later, she described the uh, strange but terrifying beauty of the ship as it slipped beneath the water. She said, the night was dark, no moon. It was very dark, but black night. And that boat was just beautiful. All the lights in the boat were on. It was just a beautiful sight. It was going down quietly, and the lights were going under the water as it went down. I remember that very plainly. It was a beautiful sight and a terrible sight as we could see that boat going down.
2: Yeah, I imagine that as the lights are going under, you know, it's starting to kind of illuminate the water a bit.
3: That's a strange way to look at it, though. But I imagine the whole thing must have been so surreal anyway. Uh, Yeah. Edith Russell, she was 33 years old at the time. She was a fashion stylist and consultant traveling first class on the Titanic. She was one of the few survivors who spoke about actually seeing the iceberg before knowing what had happened. You know, being a young professional woman, she was up partying late. She was up on the deck and she said there was a very slight bump, just a little jar, nothing at all. I went in my room. There was a second light jar, nothing of consequence, but you knew something had happened. A man said, that's an iceberg and it's a whopper because, you know, there's one eighth above water and seven eighths below. And this booming thing is rising all the way above the ship. We thought nothing of it, though. We picked up bits of ice and snow and played snowballs. They were up on deck having a snowball fight.
2: Now, if only they had had the foresight to hold on to bits of that, eBay.
3: Oh, yeah. If they had an igloo cooler in the internet, they'd be all set. Right. And then the last account didn't come from any of these sources. I remember hearing this. I read it in, I think it was Smithsonian Magazine years ago. They were interviewing a survivor of the Titanic who lived her final days in Brooklyn. Originally, she moved near... What was Ebbets Field, Mm -hmm. which was the baseball park that uh, at the time the Brooklyn Dodgers played in before Brooklyn Dodgers went to Los Angeles. She lived very close to the ballpark and she said she had to move because if she had her windows open and somebody hit a home run and the crowd would start yelling and screaming, she said, that's what it sounded like when people were drowning in the water. There were so many people in the water dying, screaming. It sounded like a baseball park full of people after a home run is hit.
2: Oh, my goodness.
3: That is a little look into the past right there. It really gives you a sense of the horror.
2: Yeah, and the the, the size of it. And the, the size of it. It's just, ugh.
3: Pretty incredible.
2: I imagine that there would be a lot of things that would remind you for the rest of your life of that night. You know, you're out enjoying a nice ice skate with a bow and your fingers get a little cold and all of a Mm. sudden it's like. Yeah.
3: Talk about PTSD. No shit. One lady talked about uh, how for years people could not believe that she was still willing to travel after surviving that people would say, well, we're going to go on holiday and we'd love to have you come, but we know you probably don't, you know, she's like, no, I'm, I'm cool. Well, yeah, but we're going to go by boat. No, that's, that's fine. You know? And she said, you can't let fear control you. You have to live your life. And right. I think that's a, a good way to end this story. Don't let fear control your life and bring an igloo cooler with you. If you ever go on a cruise in the North Atlantic, you and I, as we've mentioned, are our, our big cruisers. We like to, that sounded weird, didn't it? Uh, we like to go on cruises a lot. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, while you're sitting in the loading area waiting to get on the ship, if you listen to the conversations around you, you hear Titanic references. <laughs> Somebody is going to start whistling. Yep. My heart must go on.
2: Or you're standing in line and someone will moo.
3: <sighs> yes. Yep. Stop it. Stop it. That wasn't funny the first time we heard it, which was...
2: On the Titanic.
3: On the Titanic, yeah. (laughs) In third class.
2: Well, that was horrible. Thank you. You're welcome.
3: I'm happy to bring you horrible tidings of terror and fright.
2: Okay. On to uh, nicer things. Okay. Uh, Live performance coming up at Zanies in Nashville, February 27th. I don't know if
3: we should have segued from the Titanic into uh, (laughs) a... into our first live show because that may be a very Titanic-like event.
2: (laughs) Anyway, the uh, VIP tickets are sold out, but there are still general admission tickets available.
3: And you can get them by going to our website, theboxofoddities.com. Click on the live show link. We would love to see you there. That's Zany's Comedy Nightclub. February 27th in Nashville. I'm real excited. Box of Oddities twice a week. We'll see you on
0: Thursday.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
0: And fly it proudly. And so let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box of Copyright 2018, all rights reserved.
1: Hello, everyone. It's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms.